Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenter Paula Rose. Paula shares tips for getting kids involved in the Passover Seder. Inspired by her childhood and the Talmud, she urges Seder leaders to introduce an element of surprise each year and make kids feel like equal participants. You know, halfway through telling the story, you can just randomly collect everybody's plates, right? Like that seems like a really good way to agitate children who are like, wait, but we haven't eaten yet. Do not take my plate away. Do you have any specific memories of the Seder and how your parents or how your teachers engaged you? Yeah. So I have a lot of childhood Seder memories. I'll try not to share 500 of them. I was born on the second day of Passover. And so I obviously don't remember that. But every year at Second Seder, my whole life, I've always had a kosher for Passover birthday cake of varying qualities. Um, And when I was really young, my grandmother used to make it every year. I always felt really special at Seder. So Second Seder was obviously my birthday, so I felt even more special. But even beyond that, My parents always made sure that I had a new dress for Seder, which, again, as a little kid also felt very special and very exciting. So I was always made to feel that it was this, like, really different night um, that had these different rituals around it and that I was a full participant in the evening, that it wasn't just about the adults sitting around the table, but that actually I was a really special contributor also, which is kind of a cool thing. I don't think we often really let kids feel that way, especially in adult Jewish spaces. Another Seder memory that I think is going to sort of connect to some of the other things we might talk about is actually not my memory. It's a memory that my dad sometimes shares from his childhood. He is the son of Holocaust survivors. When his parents were first in America, they didn't have a lot of space. And the place where they held Seder, where they could actually fit the whole family, was actually in his grandmother's bedroom. And the way that they set up the table was sort of in three quarters of a square around the bed. And so people would sit on the bed itself and eat from the table. And then there would be another row of people in chairs sort of on the other side of the table. But... That always sounded so cool to me (laughs) and so different. Like there was something that actually seemed really radical about that, right? For all of the things that were different about Passover that I noticed as a child, we still ate in the dining room. We still sat around the table, right? In certain ways, it was kind of like any other holiday meal. And the idea of eating in the bedroom, I just thought was like very cool and, and very intriguing. So you mentioned that as a child, you felt like you were a full participant at the Seder. Can you remember how you took advantage of that? How did you participate? Yeah, there were two main ways really different from each other. The first is that when I was about eight years old, I was not the youngest grandchild, but my dad taught me how to say the four questions in Yiddish. And for a while, eventually both of my younger siblings learned. But for a while, that was really my role as 
not the not never the youngest child at the Seder, but for a long time, the only one who knew how to do it in Yiddish. And so that was um, certainly a place where, like, I really participated and I knew that I had a particular task that was mine. Um, and as I got a little bit older, I got a little bit embarrassed about it. Like, I was a little self-conscious and I didn't always want to do it. But I always did. Like, I knew that that was something that I contributed to the Seder that, like, brought my grandmother a lot of joy um, and my parents a lot of joy and that it was sort of, like, my role and I needed to bring it. <laughs> and then the other piece is that as, as I got a little bit older, we started doing skits at the Passover Seder. So there's this great book called Sedra Scenes that has really corny skits written out about every Parsha in the Torah. And so my parents took out the few Parshiot from the beginning of the Book of Shemot that tell the Exodus story. And everybody at the table actually would participate in acting out these skits. So my dad would hand out the parts, right? He would say, okay, you're going to be Pharaoh. You're going to be God. You're going to be Moses. You're going to be Egyptian number one. You're going to be Egyptian number two. And then we would all sort of be like really full participants and characters in the retelling of the story, which is pretty fun. So since this podcast is about involving children in the Seder, I thought that throughout our discussion, we could intersperse ideas of what to do. So you just mentioned the idea of not only having Manish Tana in Hebrew and English is probably pretty standard too, but perhaps in even more languages that are pertinent to your family, and doing plays. Can you think of any other way of involving children where they take the position of leader or they are responsible for a section of the Seder? Yeah. So first, I just want to expand um, actually on the different languages piece. It's worth noting there's a book. I don't remember the exact title, but I think it's something like the four questions in 300 languages. And some of them are real standard spoken languages. And some of them are like, I think Pig Latin is in there. But that's a pretty fun resource. I know a lot of families who sort of every year will pick like one other random language. And that can actually be a really fun thing to do, um, especially with like middle and high schoolers as they're learning a foreign language in school, right? If they're taking Spanish in school, they can be in charge of the four questions in Spanish, especially as they might be getting to an age where they might be feeling sort of done <laughs> with being responsible for the four questions. Kind of a funny way to renew some sense of involvement there. Another really nice way, it requires a little bit more planning, <laughs> but to have kids really feel a sense of ownership of different parts of the Seder is through crafts um, and through ritual objects. It's not hard to make a kiddish cup. You know, you can do it out of a plastic cup that you cover with stickers and glitter. It's not hard to make a matzah cover or an afikoman bag, depending on the age of the child, right, to let them decorate it, to let them share about it, to let them share about that part of the Seder, right? So we're going to use my Kiddush cup to make Kiddush, and here's what we're saying when we say Kiddush, um, and here's where in the Seder Kiddush happens. But um, sometimes having those tangible objects that kids made themselves is a really nice way for them to feel ownership over the step of the Seder where that object is being used. So a lot of your work at Beth Shalom has been around involving children in Judaism in really innovative ways. And I was wondering what in particular got you interested in that aspect of Judaism? Did you receive training in it in your Jewish education and rabbinical school? It seems like 
almost a calling for you, and I was wondering if you could speak about it. Sure. I think perhaps the best training that I received was actually as a child. I grew up in a synagogue with a phenomenal Jewish educator, which I sort of took for granted at the time because (laughs) she was the only synagogue Jewish educator that I knew. But she did a really wonderful job of building relationships um, with all of the kids and making us feel like our synagogue was really our space. And also, she did a great job of creating programming that was fun and engaging and also had some content, right? So I was definitely learning. But more than I was learning content, I was learning to feel really comfortable in synagogue. I was learning that this is a place where people really cared about me. It was a place where my friends were. um, And it was a place where we did fun and exciting things. And that role modeling, I think, was really powerful for me, um, especially as I got a little bit older and discovered that, lo and behold, that was not the case in every community um, and that not every child felt that way about their synagogue. So let's take... Pesach Passover as an example. Could you tell me how you come up with the programs that you're going to teach different levels of kids? Yeah, it's a little bit different every year. Sometimes I read something that sparks an idea or sometimes an idea just sort of lands. But actually, I think the first step, and this is really relevant also if you're hosting a Seder uh, where children will be present, the first step is really to think about the goals of the program. So what do I want the kids to leave with? What, What do I want them to know that they didn't know before? What kind of experience do I want them to have? How do I want them to feel? And then moving backwards from that into, okay, what kind of program can I create that will meet those goals? And I think that actually Jewish educators think about that all the time, as do secular educators. But I think that that's actually not a question that we ask about Seder very often. We have the Haggadah. We have this sort of book that is a blueprint of how the evening is going to go. And I think there's often sort of a sense of there are these rituals. We do them every year. And like maybe the goal is like to make our way through them. But I think we don't often take the step back and ask what do I want the participants at my Seder to experience? What do I want them to learn? What connections do I want them to make? What do I want them to be able to do that they couldn't have done when they walked into the room? Because I think asking those questions might really frame and potentially change what we do at Seder. So say you're hosting Seder and you have children in attendance. What do you want them to feel? What do you want them to experience during the Seder? Yeah, so I think that's a really personal question. I'll answer it for myself. But I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer. And I think some of it is also age-dependent on the ages of the kids and also on their background levels. For kids who are a little bit younger, I would love for them to get a sense of the story of the Exodus, sort of come to understand the outline of that story, being enslaved, the ten plagues and other signs and wonders performed by God, the splitting of the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness. Like, I I would like them to sort of get a sense of that story and its parts and a sense that this is sort of the, in many ways, the Jewish story and to feel like that story is theirs and that they're continuing as part of it. For older kids who might already sort of have a grasp 
on that story. My sort of content goals might be more around thinking about questions of like, what does it mean to be free? Um, And what are the ways that we still feel held back? And who are the people in our world who really aren't free? Um, And sort of learning how to take the themes out of the story and actually apply them to their own lives and the world around them which is obviously, you know, something that you can do with an 11 or 12-year-old that you can't really do with a 4 or 5-year-old. And emotionally, I would say I would want any kid who's present at my Seder to feel like this is an exciting night. This is a night where we're doing things differently. And to feel like it's a positive experience. You know, I know a lot of people don't always feel that way about the Passover Seder. It's really long. It often starts late at night. Eating dinner is not the first thing that happens, and I think we need to be really sensitive to that. Like, I don't want to, you know, take sort of all of the ritual and order of the Seder and just throw it all out the window, but I do want to make sure that I'm setting it up in such a way that it really is an enjoyable experience um, and something that they can then look forward to each year, knowing that they're going to come and they're going to learn something new um, and they're going to be part of this conversation with adults and that it'll be sort of an enjoyable Um, meaningful piece of what it means to be a Jew. So you mentioned that one of the things you think could be really appealing to kids is to feel they're part of a conversation with adults. Can you give a few tips of how to get that started, how to get them engaged in that sort of conversation? Yeah, there are several different ways of doing that. But I think that the most important, really, is just making space and listening, especially with the fact that the Seder is long. Sometimes there's this desire to, like, keep moving. (laughs) There are a lot of words in the Haggadah, and especially if you're committed to, like, really reading all of them, there can sometimes be this sense of a time crunch um, and a sense of you're going to read this paragraph, you're going to read the next paragraph, and we're just going to keep moving. But as that's happening, remembering to pause, (laughs) and especially with pieces that might be sort of naturally um, more understandable (laughs) for kids, to ask some open-ended questions and wait, right? Like, if kids don't have anything to say immediately, don't let them off the hook, right? Don't move on immediately. Not that they should be, like, put on the spot and made to feel uncomfortable for a really long time, but to really make sure that as adults we're really listening and making the space for kids to participate as opposed to just filling the Seder with our own voices. So what's interesting to me is you just mentioned that the adults should ask the children questions, but you actually brought two Talmudic sources where we're trying to encourage the children to ask the adults questions. So let's start with those texts and read them through, and maybe after you read the first text, we can discuss it. Sounds good. Our rabbis taught, all are obligated in these four cups, that is the four cups of wine uh, that are drunk at the Seder, men, women, and children. That might seem striking. Rabbi Yehuda said, what benefit do children receive from wine? Rather, one gives them roasted grains and nuts on Passover Eve so that they will not sleep and so that they will ask questions. They said about Rabbi Akiva that he would distribute roasted grains and nuts to children on Passover Eve so that they would not sleep and so that they would ask questions. It was taught that Rabbi Eliezer says, one grabs the matzot on the nights of Passover for the sake of the children so that they will not sleep. 
Could you tell us where that's from? Sure. So that's from um, the Babylonian Talmud, which is usually the Talmud that we're referring to when we say the Talmud. And it's taken from the last chapter of Tractate Psachim, which is the chapter that deals primarily with the Seder um, and what that ritual looks like. So you <laughs> interspersed your own comment in the first section. And my interpretation is you are questioning giving children wine. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> Certainly, especially four cups of it. Right. So I was wondering, the thing that stood out to me is they said, what benefit do children receive to wine? And in the modern age, we might ask a different question is, you know, what detriment could children receive from that wine? So I was wondering if you could just give a little tidbit of a historical context to talk about alcohol consumption during that time and how it related to children. Sure. Um, so I don't know much about alcohol consumption by children in the ancient world, though I'm sure that there is research out there about that. But it is worth noting that the wine that the rabbis drank was likely quite diluted. So the verb that the rabbis use um, in talking about pouring a cup of wine is limzog, which actually means to mix, because what they're doing is they're mixing the wine with water, which also might help explain the ritual of having four cups in general, right? Suddenly, four cups seems less ridiculous when those cups are significantly less alcoholic than they might be today. And I think the question that they're really asking, this question about like what benefit is there, for children in drinking wine, I think they're really asking, do children enjoy that? Right? Like, what kid wants to drink four cups of wine? Right? Most kids um, who I've seen, right, might take a sip of wine out of the kiddush cup and they make a face like, ew, that tastes gross. So the idea of giving them four cups doesn't seem like a way to make them particularly happy or feel particularly celebratory about this Passover ritual, right? It might be more like giving them medicine or something like that. Uh, so I think that's sort of what they're getting at, especially based on the answer, which is basically, no, 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 we give them roasted grain and nuts, which might be things that they would actually enjoy <laughs> and look forward to eating, which then might enhance their participation in the Seder more. Another thing that struck me about that is roasted grains are not currently kosher or Passover. <laughs> yeah, it's a very funny thing, actually. It doesn't really specify what kind of grain, so we don't really know exactly what they're talking about. Certainly some commentators will take stabs at it. But this is actually probably a really clear early indication that at least kitniot, legumes and other kinds of grains that are not the ones that we make matzah out of, and are not the ones that can become chametz, probably were eaten. But yeah, might be something that some Jews would not eat today on Passover, which is kind of funny. So reading this passage, it seems like the rabbis wanted two things. They wanted the kids to stay awake or not sleep, and they wanted them to ask questions. So when you were talking about planning ahead and planning what experience you want the kids to have, uh, it seems like they were doing that as well. So let's move on to the next text. Okay. And this text is also from the Talmud in Tractate Psachim, just a few pages later than the text before. Rav Shimi Bar Ashi said, Matzah is placed before each and every participant at the Seder. Bitter herbs are placed before each and every participant, and charoset is placed before each and every participant. And the table is only removed from in front of the person who is reciting the Haggadah. Why does one remove the table? The school of Rabbi Yanai says, so that the children will notice and will ask. 
Abaye was sitting before Rabbah. He saw that they were removing the table from before him, and he said to those removing it, We have not eaten yet! Why are you taking the table away from us? Rabbah said to him, You have exempted us from reciting Manishtana. That is the four questions. <laughs> That's a really wonderful passage. And one of the cool things is they mention Manishtana, yeah. which we still say today. So it's wonderful to be able to see that uh, historical continuity. Yeah, that's actually one of the really cool things about studying this particular chapter of Talmud. In many ways, the Seder hasn't changed that much from the time of the Talmud. Many of the ritual pieces actually are still pretty much exactly the same. So does that part of the Talmud lay out the texts that we still read today? Uh, Many of them, yeah. So why does one remove the table? I didn't get a straight answer. Okay, okay, good. So this text really troubled me the first time I learned it, but I've come around a little bit. So a little bit of background, actually, so that we can sort of visualize this um, in the way that the rabbis are probably talking about it. The Seder has many similarities to a Roman symposium. And so imagining that might help us. So what it probably would have looked like in antiquity is everybody sort of reclining on their own couch, uh, right, sort of lying on one side with a small table in front of them, as described by this passage from the Talmud that might have each of the these symbolic foods on it, right? So we're not talking about one big dining room table with everybody sitting around it, but sort of a different layout with everyone on their own couch. Then why remove the table? It seems like it's literally just to confuse the kids and make them ask questions, which I kind of love. The questions that we ritually ask at the Seder have answers, right? So we say, right, like on all other nights of the year, we eat chametz and matzah. Why tonight only matzah, right? If we then talk through the story, we get an answer to that question. Why do we eat bitter herbs? We get it. There's a symbolic answer to each of these questions, right? The question of why do we remove the table? The only answer is to get you to notice and pay attention and ask questions about this ritual that we're engaged in, um, which is maybe a little bit circular. But I think that there's actually something kind of sweet about it. I think it's actually very similar to what Rabbi Eliezer taught in the text that we looked at before about grabbing the matzah. There's no sort of symbolic reason there to grab the matzah, Um, right? We could make one up. We could say it's because we were leaving in a hurry. We needed to grab the matzah and run. But that's not what the text says. It seems to just be about getting the kids to ask, right? If an adult at the Seder is suddenly like grabbing up all of the matzah from the table, children might be kind of incredulous about that and be like, what are you doing? Stop taking all of the matzah. That's engagement, right? If we can get kids sort of riled up in that way, now they're suddenly invested in what's happening around the table. To go back to the second text, when Rabbah says to Abaye, you have exempted us from reciting the Manishtana, of course, we can't tell the tone that it's set in, but when I read it, I, like, heard it as a joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Talmud, I think, jokes around a lot. So I think there is a little bit, there, there's certainly a little bit of jokiness in this story. And I think it's also funny, right, because right, this isn't um, a conversation between a parent and a child, right? It's like two rabbis who are um, having this exchange. And Abaye is triggered in exactly the same way that we hope that children are by, like, something strange happens, um, and he responds exactly the way that the text hopes a child might respond, which I think is really sweet. 
But I think in a certain way he's serious because, right, the question that Abaye asks is, we haven't eaten. Why are you taking the table away from us? Which if we zoom out a little bit, the question he's really asking is, why are we doing this strange and different thing? It doesn't make sense. And that ultimately is what the four questions are about, right? Like, that is Manishtana. Why is this night different from all other nights? So that's not the literal question that Abaye asks, but if we look back at the bigger picture, it kind of is the same question. And so Rabba's like, Great, you noticed that this night is really different from all other nights, and you asked about it, and now we can move on with the Seder. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So just to insert a couple tips on how to get kids engaged in one's own Seder, have you ever involved jokes or humor as part of that? I think we do that all the time. There's, like, the song about, like, Pharaoh and the frogs, right? Like frogs on his head and frogs in his bed, right? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) So I think we sort of naturally do that in some ways. I think there's definitely room for more. But in terms of tips for the Seder that are inspired by these texts, I feel like a really big element here is surprise. And not just that this night should be different from all other nights and that the Seder shouldn't look like the other nights of the year, but actually that each Seder shouldn't look like each other, right? Each of these things stops working eventually, right? So if every year you grab the matzah, or if every year you remove the table, the kids are going to stop asking about it, right? They know, oh, Passover is the night where the matzah gets grabbed. And this happens, too, with the other four questions. By a certain age, most kids who have been to a Seder every year know, oh, Passover is the night where we eat bitter herbs. Passover is the night where we eat matzah. That stops grabbing their attention at a certain point. It becomes totally routine and normal because it's exactly what they expect at the Seder. Uh, And I think these texts are really giving us not just permission, but actually urging to do things that are kind of crazy at the Seder. They will actually make, in a genuine way, will make the participants ask, wait, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are we doing this? Because that surprise actually makes us notice and then keeps us invested in what's happening at the table. So do you have any suggestions for moments of surprise that we can sprinkle through our Seder? Sure. And I think that I think also like that everybody can make these up for themselves. So like you don't even need to follow my license. And I think that um, it's really significant that these texts, um, the things that they're doing that are different um, and that are surprising are not symbolic in any way. Literally anything wild and crazy that you could think of works. So I would, I have not yet, but I would love to hear of a Seder where somebody literally takes away the table. That's obviously a little bit more logistically complicated today. But please, by all means, give that a try. Same thing with grabbing matzah, which is not that logistically complicated. Like, you could do that. But there are any number of other things that you could do, right? Sort of in the same vein as moving the table. You know, halfway through telling the story, you can just randomly collect everybody's plates, right? Like, that seems like a really good way to agitate children who are like, wait, but we haven't eaten yet. Do not take my plate away. So I think there's, like, a lot of room um, for sort of sticky things like that. I think um, you can also move locations. My husband's family often does most of the Seder in the living room. Um, so they start around the table and make kiddush, and then once they get to Magid, to telling the story, everybody moves into the living room and brings their Haggadah and their wine glass with them um, and sort of spreads out on couches and on the floor, which the first time that you do that, 
especially for a child, is really weird, right? Like, you've just explained that we're going to do this whole dinner ritual, and then you leave the dining room. That's kind of crazy. The only thing that I would caution is that any of these things have the potential to turn into something that's ritual and then becomes rote, right? So if every year you grab the matzah, or every year you move to the living room, or every year you do the same skit about the Seder, which is what we did in my family growing up, I think in certain ways you're actually undermining that, right? It's no longer surprising, right? It's surprising the first time, maybe the second time, or, you know, you can do it once, pull it back out, you know, five or ten years later, right? There are ways to sort of reuse things while maintaining surprise. But turning it into something that you do every single year, which I think there's a big temptation to do, especially if something works well, when we do that, I think we sort of undermine that element of keeping people on their toes. So some people really enjoy the process of coming up with new ideas. Some people, that's not their jam. Do you have any suggestions for maybe resources on the internet or different ways of finding out new things to insert in your Seder each year? Sure. So first of all, I would say if you're a person for whom coming up with new and creative ideas every year is a challenge, feel free to mooch off of the people who enjoy that. I definitely know lots of people who love doing that and are happy to offer, you know, here's what we've done at our Seder for the past 10 years. So that's many years worth of new ideas that you can often just get word of mouth or from friends. But there are many, many, many Haggadot out there. And even some Haggadot that don't present themselves as particularly innovative will sometimes include different customs that you might have never tried before. And so it doesn't even need to be anything that wild and crazy. As long as it's something that you've never done at your Seder, it's a good thing to try. Thinking about kids in particular, and especially older kids, um, and keeping them involved and on their toes. There are also, I would say, more and more every year, different kinds of what I'll call novelty Haggadot that focus on particular themes or deal with the text from a particular angle. So there's the Hogwarts Haggadah, which is very cute um, and ties in the story of, of the Exodus with different tidbits from Harry Potter. So if you have a kid who's a really big Potterhead or a family that are all really big Potterheads, there's potential there to incorporate some different things. And even if you don't use anything directly from the Haggadah, it might spark other ideas of ways to incorporate sort of something else that you enjoy or that is meaningful to you. There are all different kinds of artistic Haggadot. This year, there's a new graphic novel Haggadah. So often, sort of those pieces of art might be helpful. And then the other thing, taking a step back, that I would encourage people to think about, again, is going back to those goals. So thinking about what are your goals for the Seder and then seeing if that prompts anything, right? There might be ways to tie in sort of these different elements of surprise and doing things that are new and different with also actually what are your goals for the kids at your Seder, but for all of the participants at your Seder. That might sort of spark some ideas. I was talking, um, I taught a class on these two texts this past Shabbat and was talking to some of the participants present. And as we were thinking about the goals and talking about what does it mean to teach children to imagine themselves as if they've left Egypt, right? That's sort of one of the cornerstones of this ritual that we say that each person is obligated to see themselves as if they've left Egypt. Somebody suggested that maybe like a natural outgrowth of that is having kids pack a backpack, 
if we're going on a big trip, right, we're leaving the only thing we've ever known and we're going somewhere else, we're going to go wander in the desert, what are you going to bring with you? And you can do that in the abstract as a conversation, which works for adults too, certainly. But for kids who often need something a little bit more tangible, like hand them a backpack, right? Let them go to their room, see what is important to them to bring and let them share that with those who are at the table. So I think often if we take this step back to think about what are our goals, often the activities and the particulars um, will sort of flow naturally out of that. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> and an early Chag Kasher V'Sameach. Thank you. The Seattle Limudcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamara Libicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Paula Rose, and happy Passover.